Hi, and welcome to the VFX Show. I'm Mike Seymour, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Jason Diamond. How are you, Jason? Uh, very good. And Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I'm doing uh, pretty good. So this is our kind of Oscar preview, I guess, if you want to say that, because I think we we could do an Oscar show where we predict what's going to win. But if we did that, I'd say June. What would you say, Jason? I mean, I think Dune probably should win. And Matt? Yeah, I, I mean, at least I've, I haven't seen uh, the Spider-Man movie, so I can't speak to all of them. But um, I mean, of the ones I've seen, I would say Dune is... Uh, Pretty spectacular, although I watched it again today, and I will say I do have a critique or two of a couple shots. Okay, well, I'm going to say that, I, without a doubt, in my opinion, June is the favorite leading into the uh, Oscars, right? So it's up against uh, Free Guy, No Time to Die, uh, Legend of the Ten Rings, and Spider-Man with all the little Spideys. And while all of those films are good, I mean, they are, right? And some of them have some different aspects. Like, I mean, obviously there's a huge amount of nostalgia around uh, No Time to Die because it's uh, the last one of uh, Craig's uh, performances and Spider-Man has its own angles because suddenly we've got, um, you know, multiple different Spider-Man and a very clever solution to the uh, fact that there were all these pre-existing origin films. I think from a visual effects point of view, uh, the the money is definitely uh, coming behind June. So what we're going to do this week is we're going to focus on discussing uh, the film June uh, as kind of our Oscar prediction. But if at any time we sway off that and discuss the other uh, contenders, you'll know why. Uh, and so obviously this film, apart from being magnificent and everything else, really feels a bit like a part one of two-parters. And there is in fact a two-parter coming in 2023. Um, it wasn't actually announced before they released this $150 million film um, because it wasn't a dead cert, Matt, that this was going to be successful. In fact, you know, the fact that they didn't do the whole thing, the fact they sort of did like what effectively like half of it. And let's face it, things like Blade Runner, um, which is obviously the director's previous um, uh, film, uh, I think it was his previous, was it the most recent before this? I think it was. Anyway. I think so. Um, Blade yep. Runner 2049 did not, not deliver the kind of box office that they were hoping for. And it wasn't a disaster or anything else. It um, grossed about 250 million worldwide, but for a $150 million film, that wasn't considered kind of a blockbuster getaway hit. He got about 150, 165 million to make this one, which was less, he said, uh, than you would expect from say a Marvel film, but that he thought actually gave him kind of a focus and a clarity uh, in doing the work, but it's already grossed about 400 million. And let's not forget, this is one of the films that was affected by the decision to go straight simultaneously to cinema uh, and to streaming. So that box office number is light compared to what we guess would have expected. So I think most people would agree box office success. And the other thing, Jason, is uh, this sucker's lined up a bunch of craft awards in the, uh, or at least craft nominations in the Oscars, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty on point all the way around. Like, we, I think it's fair to say we might have critiques, but when you say that, like, all the departments are firing on all cylinders, this, these are the, this is the kind of movie you're talking about. Like, everyone is a game on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say the same. I mean, it's like when you watching it again today. I mean. You know, the sound design is like totally top notch. It's got a great score. I even thought like uh, something I watching today, I thought one of the things that's got the, 
the audio recording, like the onset audio recording of the dialogue mm-hmm. is great. Like when they're really far away like, and walking like through the desert at one point, I was just like, well, it, it's like, I, it feels so, um, I don't know. It's, it's so good. Like, and yeah. yeah, exactly. Like really there's no ADR going on or if there is like, I wouldn't know it. Um, and, uh, the costumes too. I mean, just off the charts, like yeah. there's so much great stuff. So it's nominated for, of course, best picture and best visual effects, which is what we think it'll probably win. Um, it was also nominated for screenplay, uh, for costume design, uh, picking up on your point, uh, Matt, makeup and hair, cinematography, which I think Greg Frazier, I'd really like keen to hear Jason's thoughts about that, but also for production design and uh, editing, uh, music and uh, best sound. And for that end, I, I don't think we- Is that all of them? It's pretty much, all, is that every category almost? Uh, well, obviously some categories, you so like, for example, screenplay, you can only be nominated in adapted screenplay or- Well, or I know, but I'm just saying like, it's pretty much all the main categories, no? Mm, yeah, okay. So Feels you like would it. say main category, why is it not got best director? Best uh, oh, craft that's categories. True. Yeah, so, yeah. you know. That's true. But, but my- but I think at this point we sh- would be remiss if we didn't touch on the fact that our comrades and brothers and sisters in editing and sound and stuff have having their Oscars uh, completely, I don't know, perverted, I guess, by the fact that those are not yeah, included in the main event. So just, do you want to just touch on that for a second? Because I think it's a big point, right? Uh, me? Yeah, Jason, <laughs> yeah, you, you, well, Jason, you already called Jason it bullshit. Jason can so speak to it. Yeah. I have yeah. a different opinion about it myself, frankly. But I mean, I mean, uh, if you're going to have an awards show that is the awards of the crafts of the, of the um, uh, let me put it this way. I think people have conflated along, for a long time the concept of entertainment and awards shows. Like an awards show where you're giving things away to celebrate the achievements in a given field or, uh, you know, whatever is the focus. Now I understand that Joe moviegoer doesn't give a shit about editing or whatever, cause maybe they don't understand it or they don't care about makeup. But personally for me, it's kind of like, well, tough shit. It comes with the best picture and all your favorite songs categories, because these are the people who's, jobs make the movies what they are um so i have to say editing was the one that shocked me the most because and somebody else articulated this but i'm going to repeat it of every category that you could pretty much name you could say oh but that's something that's also in theater that's something that's also in fashion that's also something in whatever except for film editing film editing is uniquely motion pictures it's an art Mm -hmm. form that only exists in and of because motion pictures to take that out of the the running and sort of somehow imagine that it's a lesser a child of a lesser god just seems absurd to me in fact i would point out that uh all of the categories that are being given awards to are jobs people are doing in order for the show to actually happen (laughs) outside of visual effects but you have graphics you know what i mean like there's a guy live editing yeah, you know, in the switcher, there's a director, there's a cinematographer, there's camera operators. Like, it's just a little weird. But let's. I want to hear that, what Matt has to like, say. Well, I was going to say because the counterpoint is that the Academy has got addicted to the revenue of getting high ratings 
of course. rather than the money that the high ratings bring. And because yeah. they're addicted to that high revenue stream, they have to make it more entertaining and they've seen plummeting ratings. So Matt, oh, what do come you Come up with a cool way, come up with oh. a cool way to do it, you know, instead of just walking on stage, but go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like, you know, I, there've been a couple of interesting takes on it and, you know, I, I can appreciate certainly that there are a number of people and and disciplines within, you know, sort of the subcategories that are being um, recorded, you know, at the event, but shown record, not shown live, but shown recorded. Yeah. Um, I totally understand that disappointment, but at the same time too, like, you know, I think the Oscars should just be like a pay-per-view event for people who want to watch it. Like there was right. a great hot take from, um, I think it was Seth Rogen that I thought was just brilliant where he's like, well, who cares? You know, like it's the only industry that celebrates itself uh, and it, everyone expects it to be on television, you know, like what, like no one's watching the international plumber awards for like best toilet bypass, you know, or whatever it might be. And there is kind of this like, a kind of a ridiculous sort of hubris to the idea that like, well, it's got to be on TV and I have to have my moment on TV where I'm celebrated on TV. And it's like, it's always been that way, I guess, uh, at least in the modern era. But at the same time too, I just think like, you know, it's cool that the people within the industry care so much about it, but I think it's like the height of, uh, self-involvement to think that like other people should also equally care and be outraged. I, but, I just don't, but, but it doesn't the need to be on TV. Be, <laughs> sure. But wouldn't the counter argument be if you're going to pick what's on TV and not. See, here's the, here's the thing. Like they're, they're basically saying this bit is really what the Academy Awards are most about. And these bits aren't. And they've already done that because it's meant to be the Academy of Arts and Sciences and the sciences half gets mm -hmm. pretty short shift to start with. I mean, we've had the, you know, quick 30 second montage of them giving away uh, awards from that ceremony. Now I I've been lucky enough to go to that ceremony, right? Go to the Oscars and, and it's great. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's now saying, look, basically uh, we're going to inflate in the, in the zeitgeist, the role of the actor primarily as being the most significant contributor to the success of a film. And we're going to conflate that in a way that I think is disproportionate because like, I mean, obviously they make a lot of money and, and they can open a film. So like for some actors, you know, if you get Tom Hanks in a film, I'm going to go see the film because I like Tom Hanks. I don't say they're not insignificant, but by the same token, there's a lot of actors that look good because of the editors that uh, do stuff. There are a lot of uh, actors that, you know, just benefit from those craft roles and are you saying well, that that's a behind the curtain? That's a that's a bit of a behind the curtain statement, though, because general the general public doesn't know that. And I to your point, I do. You know, let's not be disingenuous here. The Oscars are a giant commercial for Hollywood and the movies. It's marketing and by and by marketing those big uh, actors, they're keeping them up on the pedestal. So when the studio puts them in another picture, they make a gajillion dollars. I get that uh, part of it as well. But to my uh, Matt's point, I, I agree with you hundred percent that it probably would be better to make a pay-per-view yeah. because it would be targeted and whatever and what have you. But the argument is because it's not, and then they're and it's going to be tele televised 
the pay-per-view argument is irrelevant because it's not going to be on pay-per-view it's on tv and if it's going to be on tv it should be everyone should just buckle up and and respect all the awards in my opinion i get why they're doing it uh mike made a good plenty of good salient points as to why uh you know it it may not be not that he agrees with it but just the concept of why they might you know push them I guess off I, I guess i i mean and i don't mean to belittle i mean look i love cinema i love filmmaking sure. i love all of the yeah. you know various crafts and professions and the sort of team oriented aspect of it i mean i the collaborative aspect of it i mean i i love that like i don't have anything but uh i mean it's like my whole life has been sort of dedicated to that um but at the same time too i i look back at sort of the some of the things that are brought up around you know credits as well like credits on a movie i think this is similar um there was a time in cinema history where only the above the line credits were even shown mm -hmm. and no mm -hmm. one else ever got a credit on a movie and the kind of uh and and there were and there you, there's tons of great arguments for not having 10 minutes of credits after a movie and how it, you could have more screenings in theaters, for example, right? You could have a whole nother screening a day, probably if you had five or six screenings in a, oh, in a given day in a movie. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I, I don't know that in the end, like, you know, it's a, it's a hierarchical uh, medium where uh, there is a writer, there is a director, you know, there are those credits that are sort of the above the line credits. And then there's a whole bunch of services that are provided, but, and to have to credit every single service or to in the same way on a show that is about an industry celebrating itself, you know, to have to feel like everything has to be on TV. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I guess I just feel like it's a tempest in a teapot. Like it's, it's an argument that not that well, many we will, people we will move on, but I will and... say that there's the number of times I've seen an actor be asked by the press. So what's going to happen in your character next season? And I feel like going, the actor has no control over that. The <laughs> yeah, actor they don't know. doesn't know anything, right? They are like, you're pretending like they somehow are the auteur of this story. They are just a major contributor, but they're not the, you know, like the way that that's kind. And so the more that we do these things, the more we build up this mythology that the actor is somehow magically like writer, you know, director, actor, you know, creative choice of, are all around them. And that's just not true. Um, but having said that, I, I get your point. And, you know, but I will say this, one of the great things about the Oscars is that it tends to, at least at the moment, tends to pick up films that aren't mega blockbusters and bring those to the public's attention through the fact that they've got Oscars. So you've got a film that maybe isn't a box office hit, gets Academy Awards, and that gives it a huge boost along. And you think, well, a lot more people are going to see Coda or whatever that film is if it gets a Best Academy Award. And, and that's, that's great, right? Because if they gave that Academy Award just to the film that made the most money each year, it's like, well, everybody's already seen it. Right. <laughs> so, Which they kind of do in a lot of, a lot of times, but, but not yeah, always. But I, but not I, always. I, not ironically, always. I totally agree with what you're saying, but ironically, I think it's also that factor that uh, at least the producers of the Oscars seem to think is part of the problem with regards to the lower ratings of the show. It's not that it's like, oh, these great small movies are the ones that are nominated, these prestige pictures. It's that like the movies that people have seen aren't in the show. So they increase the category to 10 best picture yeah, categories. Can we, just, can we just go back to Jason's point though? Like some of these shows are just really naff. 
I mean, it's not <laughs> that people are like, you know, not interested in the film so much, but like they do these kind of gags where they'll like go down in the audience and do some kind of thing. Yeah. And they like reading off a teleprompter on one side and it's like poorly timed because they're just not used to doing live theater. They're used to doing yeah. stuff that's edited. And so as a consequence, <laughs> you're just like cringing when you're watching these like cracks. Like even the BAFTAs, which, you know, are not obviously meant to be quite, but they were just, there were some horrendous, specifically over June, horrendously cringy jokes over the sand monster that I was like, yeah. this is like socket puppet theater. This is so bad. This anytime is just not I, funny. Anytime I hear the BAFTA uh, mentioned, I just think of <laughs> Steve Coogan talking about like, yes, I've got three BAFTAs. <laughs> and all those trip movies are so funny. They are, they are. And and I guess, uh, yes, if we were discussing the Batman films, particularly yeah. so. But Fair let's enough. get back to June. Okay, so June is in the running for, um, for uh, visual effects. But I do want to also, as I said a moment ago, just touch on cinematography because I think Greg Frazier's work in this film is spectacular. Jason, I, obviously you're the closest amongst the three of us to being like um, able to comment on that just from from your professional life. Well, like, do you agree with me? Cause I think it's really nice work. Uh, I mean, I think Frazier's having the, like the last five years or more, 10 years, uh, he's like outpacing everybody just in the films he's picked. I mean, the guy, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's not, it's not a lot to say because it's all on the screen. Like, I mean, the, the scale of Dune is insane and the ability to go from these, massive wides that convey thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming out of these giant ships and not make it look fake mixed with these incredibly intimate close-ups uh large format close-ups these these beautiful uses of shadow and light to make it feel real and not feel like a set and not feel like there's cg everywhere i mean that's it's masterful like, and I, you know, we can touch on this later. I was initially kind of like up in the, on the fence about their whole um, digital to film back to digital thing, which they also did on Batman in a different way. I'm, I, I think I kind of dig it. And uh, it reminded me of the Portishead trick where they would write their own loops, record them to vinyl, put the vinyl on the floor and step on it and then sample it. You know, like <laughs> it's, there's a, there, yes, the, the cinematography is is like next level. I, I'm not sure there is a lot of people that could have shot that and kept it together like that. And there's obviously tons of incredible cinematographers out there, but I think he's got a touch for Frazier, this large. Frazier's the Hans Zimmer of cinematography. Uh, I think cinematography. so. <laughs> I think so. In, in 2005, I did a short film with him here in uh, Australia uh, called Lucky, directed by Nash Edgerton, oh, yeah. starring Nash Edgerton. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, I didn't then. I mean, I liked the peaceful stuff, right? But at no point did I sort of think this guy's going to go on to become one of the world's great, like, uh, cinematographers. I, I didn't think he was anything but a really nice guy and a good cinematographer, right? But, like, I'm not pretending like I had some looking glass. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, He's worked on like the Batman and on this and the Mandalorian and all this other stuff is just uh, phenomenal. Killing them softly. I mean, yeah, that's a, you know. But the thing so, that yes. I think is really interesting <laughs> is that like they, like, like you've got a fantastic film or a fantastic premise for a film and you've got this uh, mythical, um, mysterious sort of like 
um, whatever going on because you've got weird spice and all these other elements and you've got sort of space and fantasy and all these things thrown in. And so the one thing you're really looking for, for both cinematography and visual effects, and Matt, I'm sure you'd agree, is you somehow have to ground it as if it's real. And like getting the lighting right in, and getting it feeling like it's lit authentically, even though you're standing in front of a giant worm, and I still don't know how those things move through sand. You know what I mean? Like it just, it's, it's, it's that visual authenticity that somehow just lets you suspend disbelief. At least that's what I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the biggest things, a note I made to myself was I think, uh, you know, one of the things that weaves a lot of that together is the environments in this movie, um, both the uh, actual filmed environments, some of which, uh, you know, I think they were on location in, was it in Jordan? Son? Jordan and Abu Dhabi, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um, and then a lot of the, the digital environments, right, the enhanced digital environments, um, they're stunning. And they look totally real, and they have that kind of that hard, uh, arid light that you see in, you know, the like the in Death Valley or you know Joshua Tree or places like that in the or in Jordan or Abu Dhabi or whatever, like any kind of desert environment. It has that kind of real hard light, hard shadows, um, and I think that that uh, type of environment combined with the the darkened shadowy interiors um you know yeah it creates a host of really interesting opportunities for um you know really dynamic and rich lighting and contrast of lighting too going from you know the shadow to the to the um or even night you know today in the exteriors if we we're going to talk about, like we said, Greg is like on a roll and it's just, you know, kind of gone fire, which I think he is. He's just doing brilliant work. The other group team that's on fire is Deneg. Like oh, every yeah. time I look up and go, I wonder who did that? It's Deneg. <laughs> I mean, in a way that I haven't witnessed with Deneg, I don't think for years, right? Like it's, they are seeming to dominate. Now, part of it, of course, was that films were delayed. So like when they did the work on Bond, they obviously... You know, I would have expected to have been aware of their work on that when it came out, but it didn't come out, got moved back. So suddenly these things were all like sort of piling on top of each other. But I swear every single film that you kind of point out, every TV show, like Foundation, like everything, it's all Deneg. I mean, wow, those guys are just killing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, but it's a mixture of, of how stellar that work is with the overall shot designs, which are meant to give convey scale in very subtle ways like you whoops for those of you that are listening at home <laughs> yeah. jason just managed to knock his microphone over yes. sorry go on yes. jason <laughs> uh uh you know I'll, I'll, spoilers if there's no i mean it's kind of given but um you know when when the ships start to leave caladan and go to arrakis there's a shot where they kind of start up kind of close so you're not sure of the scale of the ship coming out of the water yeah. uh and then they cut to paul who's kind of like you know malachy hands in the wheat in the grass you know messing around doing his thing and then they sort of dolly right and you see him in relation to the ship and all of a sudden you've been given this grounded wide shot of a human that you kind of know with average scale a covey kind of irishy you know background and then a giant ship and you go oh that's fucking huge 
right? I don't know how big it is, but it's got to be really fucking big. So like you just those and, and nobody's saying anything. There's no dialogue. It's music. It's sound effects, sound design and brilliant, you know, cinematography, framing, visual effects. And that happens throughout the entire film. Like nonstop, there are these really nice visual cues of how large things are. And I don't think there's been that many movies, space movies. You know, you're in Star Wars, you see a Star Destroyer in space and you see little ships going around it. Obviously there's scale there, but this is in a, in a more grounded, slightly more grounded way because there's buildings and civilizations and things that seem to be somewhat, uh, uh, I don't know, more, I guess, grounded is just the term. But yeah, I, I'd agree. I'd say, though, that I think some of this, I, and I think that's one of the things I've always said that I love most in visual effects is, is scale. When we play with scale, yeah. either, you know, the macro scale or the extra large giant scale, mm -hmm. like, I love that. Like, it's so fascinating. And it's, I think it's hard to do well um, for a number of reasons, um, either direction. And I think that there are the bulk of the shots that portray scale in the way that you're talking about Jason in this film are great, but I, I have to say some of them, I think actually uh, don't quite work. And I have really specific reasons for them. The one that I was thinking of, you mentioned is one of them is the water flowing off of that big ship as it comes mm -hmm. up through. Uh, I, I, I watched that a couple times today and just kind of a, uh, uh, pixel effing it as they mm -hmm. say right and um there's a couple of points where the um the water coming off the top of the sort of shape of the ship uh, mm -hmm. i feel like it it actually gives away uh a smaller scale than i think is hmm. intended like it doesn't have that level is it from a speed perspective uh and like it's, it's not rolling it's, off slow enough it's somewhat speed i would say it's more um scale scalar volume of oh. the part the particle the individual sort of particles or coagulates of like some of the water that's dripping mm -hmm. like it's it, it's almost like uh they're too large uh for the scale hmm. i think that they're trying to portray so but it's a really hard thing to do i think but oh yeah. yeah it's really hard water is super super hard and 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 i i'm sure i've said this anecdote before but i apologize but like there was <laughs> There was this movie they were taking. Uh, you, I remember having this discussion, and you guys remembering what the film was, and I couldn't remember what it was. But anyway, they're taking this uh, boat over a mountain, and they decided to do it for real because they didn't want it looking fake. And so they took this boat over a mountain, and then they... Fitzcarraldo. Yeah, Fitzcarraldo. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And <laughs> when they filmed it for real, uh, I like saw the footage, and I was like, "That looks so fake. This <laughs> is like such like a model." Right. And they actually bothered to do it for real. I'd seen this whole documentary of them doing it, but um, there is know, a great book, by the way by Werner Herzog, his journals from that. It's called The Conquest of the Useless. Okay. <laughs> and it's all about it's all about shooting that film and trying to pull that ship over the mountain. It's a great but, uh, book. But the anecdote I was going to say about June, because we got to talk to the guys that uh, made it at Teenage, is that um, they, they got, uh, to get scale, they actually got a digital guy in a boat that was the right scale and sat it in the water beside the ship coming out like a 
fishing boat, right? So that you would sort of look at it and see if it looked wrong. Because when they did it initially, you go, oh, those two don't look like they're at the same, in the same picture, like they, their scale looks out. I thought it was just a neat trick, right? Like if you were doing something like that and you're trying to get scale, like get some actual objects that are maybe completely out of context, in this case, obviously from Earth, not from the planet that they're meant to be from. But you just stick them in there and you say, does that look right? Does that look like it would be? And then once you've got that adjusted, so it all looks like it matches, you just remove them again, of course, mm -hmm. uh, for the final play. And I thought, uh, yeah, simple trick, but I just thought it was like a good one. And, and certainly that influenced them on how they refined that shot uh, to give it scale. My thought, my thought when I saw the ship coming out, this, this is the second time I watched it in, in uh, my hotel room on my laptop last night, was would the ship coming out of the water before it leaves the water, although I guess it's already in the water at some point, when it's coming up and the water's rolling off, would it not create a tsunami of some kind? Small, albeit, but, you know, maybe not as, obviously not as high as Paul was way up on the cliff, but like, would it have decimated the beach a little bit? I think that when I when I look at stuff like that, like I always think of there was a shot uh, in the Watchmen, the Zack Snyder Watchmen movie that I worked mm -hmm. on, CA one thirteen, I think was the shot name, and, and this <laughs> wow. was in this was in Vancouver at um, what was the name of that place? Uh, ILM. No, it was. Um, <laughs> Sorry, this was, embassy. It was, just, it was just for a summer. MPC, yeah. MPC. And, um, and uh, the, I remember uh, working on that shot and with the team of guys uh, and girls working on it, we were discussing uh, the ship coming out of the, the owl ship coming out of the East River. Mm -hmm. And it's a similar shot, but it's a much smaller scale, right? And so it's all about the displacement of the, the surface tension of the water, the breaking of the surface tension of the water. And then on this ship, the owl ship, there were these jets, right, that were sort of thrusting it into the air. And so we talked about the splash that would be inherently generated, the swell, the splash, and then the splash of the splash became a thing that we would discuss, as well as then the aeration of, of water into a fine mist by the jet particles. And I think by the jets, uh, you know, aerating the water and creating mm -hmm. um, Heat. Both the, the bubbling, yeah. but also the sort of swirling kind of um, smaller particulates that would right. move at a Jet higher wash. speed. Yeah. And the, um, that shot of the ship coming out of the water, uh, it, the places where I think it's really successful is where like the smaller, almost like mist starts coming off the top. And that, that looks to scale, whereas some of the larger bits didn't, I guess, but it was a really I, I hard problem to solve. It's like, it's endlessly complicated and it's hard to, get reference for something like that really other than looking at you know submarines breach surfacing or something yeah. like that you know yeah I, I didn't bother me as a shot i must admit like uh i'm interested that it bothered you but it didn't yeah i well bothered might be a strong word but it was something that i <laughs> it was just something Interest. i noticed where i was like oh hmm, it doesn't look as big as i thought it did yeah the first time one of the things that Paul Emmett said, Paul being the visual effects supervisor, um, and, and I really zeroed in on this for a story I did on FX Guide, is, um, and he claimed it not to be his original phrase, which is the answer is in the photography, the answer is in the plate. Um, and so they would just say the answer is in the plate. And they therefore took the attitude that they had to get as much stuff in the plate as mm. possible for the answer to be in the plate. 
And I think this is a kind of interesting point, one I tried to make in the story, which is I quite often we'll hear about, well, for the moment we're hearing a lot of the debate about, oh, we did it in camera versus we did it as visual effects. And a lot of that's just derogatory and, and ill-informed comment. But some of it is like, well, you know, we did all this stuff on set and then everyone goes, well, yeah, but you threw it all away, right? You did it all digitally. As if we just let them do it on set as a political exercise to appease the <laughs> whoever and then, you know, nod and a wink, they don't know what they're doing, but when we did it in post, we'll just do it properly and, and it'll all work really well. And I thought this was interesting because Dean Egg's approach was like, well, yeah, we're going to do stuff in camera and yeah, it won't be finals but it's terribly important to capture at that exact instant in that exact lighting with that lens and that like, mm -hmm. you know, whatever that's happening with that die of that particular CMOS chip, what that looks like. And that will is the ultimate truth for whether it's going to work in the plate. I can see you're nodding, Jason, but you know what I mean? Like it's that going to the yeah. effort of filming things. Well, you know, actually it's pretty likely it's going to be replaced. Well, the, interestingly, I've, uh, I was thinking about how, where we would get to this, but I have a really good example for that is I was listening to the conversation or watching rather that Larry Cher, who's a great DP in his own right, shot Joker and a bunch of other uh, films. And he has his app shot deck, which is like a web app that gives you references to like all the great movies and it's a really cool app and he has a he had a conversation with Frazier about Dune and hearing two top cinematographers talk to each other about you know like hearing Larry Cher go how did you do that is you know is fun and so that one of the shots they brought up was I forget where it happens in the movie but I think it's the Sardaukar in uh it's like it's a really big wide shot with what looks like it's a lot of black in the back. There's a big column and it there's like these huge pools of light coming through some what should be in the seal, you know, something in the ceiling. And the conversation was, how do we do that? Because we can't like doing it inside. Fraser's like, well, we could do it in a stadium, but then we'd have to spend the time blacking out an entire. That's just that's impossible. We could do it outside. But then we would have to do all this, like there was no perfect solution to getting what they knew had to be in the plate, to your point, Mike, was actual sunlight, which is the only thing that could make, you know, that hard light that would come through a giant gobo in the ceiling, which would in the in the dune world would be, you know, some um, ornate uh, ceiling and the sun coming through and what have you. And they're like, well, we could do it with HMIs, but like we can't get them far away enough. It never really looks right. So what they figured out was, hold on a second. We have two giant sound stages and there's a huge space between them that's outside. So if we just box in the space between the stages and figure out what time the sun is going to be hitting right between the stages, then we can do it with the real sun. And they had like literally, I think it was like 15, 20 minutes or something to shoot those few wides and the tight ones, obviously you can fudge it, but to get it, and there's CG in the shot clearly, right? But in order to get the light exactly right, which is the grounding truth to how your eye goes, that's fake, um, you know, they, they, took the time to solve that problem and it shows, right? And you look at it and you go, oh, that's cool. And all the work they went through to it, through it to make it happen 
is just enough to make it, I mean, it's a beautiful shot, but to make it look real. And the audience should, by all accounts, not even think about it. They should just say, that's real. And uh, so I think that speaks to your your point about getting it in, in the plate, even though you're going to, you know, monkey with it afterwards. Yeah. How much do you think that, how far should you go with that, Matt? Like how far is it to just be indulging that idea and how much do you like, would you applaud every cent you've got do it? I mean, I think it just depends on the shot, you know, I mean, it's, it's so shot dependent and it's going to really depend on, you know, logistically, like, you know, how, how much effort is going to go into doing it one way versus another. I think it's, you know, a time and budgetary constraint, probably more than anything else. I would hope, you know, a producer's looking at that and thinking like, well, you know, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. You want to build this big thing, but like, can't we just do it like this and then do that, you know, in, in VFX or, or vice versa um, rather than doing something that way and trying to get it in camera. I just think it's, I, it's a judgment call. And I think there's probably going to be times where that call is uh, made correctly and probably times where it's made incorrectly, where like you wind up getting into something and realize like, ah, dang, like we probably should have just done this, like, you know, on set that day, it would have looked a lot better. Um, I think it just depends. Can I, can I bring up another example that they, that they gave that's actually where the visual effects were subtle and it was mostly practical is after Paul goes in to talk to the Bene Gesserit mother and she puts the gum jabbar to his neck and he does the hand in the box and uh, they come out and um, it's like all misty and smoky and Rebecca Ferguson is, Jessica's coming out. She's really nervous that something's happened to Paul. She's talked to the Bene Gesserit. They get in their ship and she looks and you see Paul like sort of, just hidden in the in the mist uh they actually uh made the room wet it's like real humidity that they built into the stage so that they could get real actual heavy atmosphere instead of like a hazer or smoke or whatever so you know just to hit hit paul with a very subtle kick just to like bring hit you know light the the haze up just a little bit, the atmosphere a little bit, just so he just appears and it's all practical. The ship in the back, which is like, looks like a big ball, you know, with lights on it was pretty much just a lighting rig that they, that they let have real, real light effects coming through the wet sort of atmosphere, lift it, move it for real. And then of course, visual effects takes over and adds jets and, you know, stuff like that removes rigging sort of rounds it out a little bit and, you know, and, and makes a pop again, to me, that is the logical, that's the logical, you know, conclusion that you would want to come to again, to Matt's point, if budget and time make that the right choice, which it clearly did, you know, it's probably cheaper to, to get some atmosphere and humidity into a soundstage than it is to blow a whole shitload of smoke or yeah. try to do it in visual effects or whatever. Well, so, and getting all that on set interactive lighting too, like having exactly. a big light rig that you can move is going to make a big difference. Yeah. yeah. So. So let me switch gears for a second and talk about a sort of a semi-related 
thing, which is that they use these sand screens. So they were mm. putting up instead of blue screens, sand screens, sand colored screens. And there's sort of like two theories about this. Like one is, well, yeah, like if you're going to have something in the distance, you're going to replace, you're better off having a neutral color that's sort of like close to the color we want. So that, you know, it's just faithful for, I guess, bounce light and a bunch of other stuff. And then there was this trick of, hey, we can just invert that. And if you invert those yellowy tones, you get a bluey tone. And therefore, mm. if you invert it, you kind of create a blue screen. But I guess the second of those, Matt, I was interested in your opinion with you. Are you aware of what I'm talking about? The, yeah, the I mean, I, I've, I've read a couple of like just short articles on it and seen some of the photographs. It might have been even on might have been on your site. I can't remember, but it, but it was certainly an interesting uh, approach and a technique. One that, like, I hadn't. I I certainly wouldn't have thought of that. I thought it was pretty innovative. The thing that I kind of not so sure about is, and I don't know if this is a spatial color science thing, but like the inverting of the colors doesn't actually. I wouldn't have thought dramatically change the the. The, the separation that the colors have from other colors, if that makes sense. Well, I wouldn't so think a, so because especially if you're, if with at least from the photography that I saw that the color of the screen is, you know, it's sand, right? It's like a sand color. So yeah. if you're inverting that, you're inverting all the photography too, right? Because. Yeah, but I mean, the idea is that you, you would invert it. That becomes, the yellow becomes blue. You key off the blue and then you obviously put back the original um, foreground. Yeah, but you're just using it to create the matte. But my thing is, I can't see like you could key off any color, right? Like blue isn't magic. Um, blue isn't like some sort of super clever thing that, in other words, uh, like you could have a red screen and they used to. You can mm -hmm. have a green screen and they do often do. So I don't see how getting a yellow screen. I don't know if somebody wants to ping me or email me and I don't know if you know anything, Jason, but it just doesn't seem to me like a, it's visually clearer to see the thing as a blue screen because it now looks kind of blue. Yeah, And I don't know mathematically, I'm convinced that there's vastly more separation between two colors when inverted and one of them looks blue than there was before you inverted them, if that makes sense. I mean, maybe they did a multi, like a hybrid matte approach, you know, try and pull it with through the blue, try to pull it through the yellow, combine them, you know, uh, Keying is such an art as it is that, uh, you know, I, I, I would bet that it was probably like someone was messing around with it and going, oh, right. If we invert it, it's blue. Well, I know how to deal with blue. So let's just, you know, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but, you know, if you were messing with the footage, uh, I don't know. I honestly have no idea. I'm just speculating. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I always used to think that was really important about keying, and it's not rocket science either, is that when you subtract uh, and then suppress blue, like up for a blue screen, normal blue mm -hmm. screen, not an inverted one, um, then normally what you know the, a novice would do is sort of suppress any blue. So you take blue out of the foreground because you don't want blue bouncing into them, right? Um, and my point was always, no, 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 you shouldn't suppress that blue. You should just hue shift that blue to whatever color the environment mm -hmm. is. So if you're in front of a red wall, you're going to have red bounce. So if you currently got blue bounce from a blue screen, then shift your blue tinging to be red tinging, and you're going to have something that sits in there much better, right? Um, so by well, already starting... A... Oh, go ahead. Keep going. I was going to say, by already starting with a, a yellow 
effectively sand colored uh, background, you know, you're solving that problem, right? Like the foreground mm -hmm. has the bounce, the, the fill light, the fringing of yeah. the environment, which is already correct. You don't need to do that. And then of course, if you invert it, and then for some miraculous reason, I'm unaware of mathematically, that makes it an easier key to pull. Um, that doesn't well, change the fact that the foreground has the right fringing. Well, with the, if you are not creating like in a blue screen, you're obviously filling the blue channel of the Bayer pattern. Let's just use digital since they shot digitally. You're filling the blue buckets on the Bayer pattern and blue is inherently noisier than other channels, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so if you're taking a yellow, you know, uh, compare, you know, mix of colors, cause yellow isn't red, green, or blue, uh, and you invert it is the blue channel cleaner because you I mean, have that was the argument for pushing... shooting green screen over blue screen yeah. on a CMOS chip because there mm -hmm. are twice as many yeah. green wells as yeah. there are blue or red wells so yeah. you've got a higher and that's before you do the uh, matrixing to uh yeah. to go from the from the CMOS color space to the normal color space. I'm mean, look, I'm really hoping that someone incredibly cleverer than me um, will email me and, yeah. and illuminate me because um, I, I think is, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing, but regardless um, you are producing good photography, even if you roto it, because you've mm -hmm. got this like natural um, wash of uh, stuff. And also you don't have things like your, smoke or your in this case it's like sandstormy stuff um it's contaminating your blue and making it like really hard to key in the first place um but i don't think the biggest problem this film faced was pulling a key no <laughs> um, definitely not so they did these great things we're talking about like with the spice crawler how where they built a a you know an actual bit of the armature so they could stand in front of it and then they filmed mm -hmm. it at the right time of day and they had the natural shadows of that on the ground and stuff so that was really authentic um, the, the interesting thing is when you come to those, uh, I already joked about them, the, the worms, the, the practical guys put in these plates that would vibrate, that would cause the sand to, oh, um, right. effectively liquefy. And in fact, that worked. If you ran across these vibrating plates, you sunk into the, uh, the sand because once you effectively aerate by shifting mm -hmm. and, and sort of shaking the sand, of course, you've got less resistance through it, so you you go down in it. It's like what um, happens in an earthquake on a on a, a like a marsh or marshy flat kind of a grassy area mm -hmm. where you have right. liquid liquefaction, where it's all shakes and uh, you get these kind of sinkholes kind of appear. Is it like cymatics or whatever they're called? I forget the name of it. No, I haven't but, heard that. But but at some point, you have to have a mother of all worms appear, <laughs> and their mother of all worms was bigger than the you know, sting and nappy version of uh, June. And I'd, I'd like your opinion on those. I, I, it, to me, this is just the one thing that in June always bugged me is these massive worms. Well, because, what? Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, they don't really make sense in this, yeah. in this, in the, their ability to move at this, with the speed with which they move through sand right the, the the desert and the sand to the worms behaves more like water whereas but if the worm's behaves... vibrating if the worm is vibrating would it not aerate I, the sand? I knew you were going to say that but <laughs> even if they did that right which doesn't work because they're such a blunt-ended 
object, right? Like you're not well, trying to put be, a needle could through. Could be outwards, yeah. Yeah, but. but I'm still like, they've got a big flat end at the front with a bloody great <laughs> hole in it that's going to... But anyway, notwithstanding that even, right? Just for me, I, what the freak do these guys eat that they have enough energy to do what we're talking about doing, right? Like, I mean, conservation of mass, conservation of energy, like this, like if you've got a, a bunch of cows, they eat a lot because they're big, right? If you've mm -hmm. got something the size of an elephant, it eats more because it's big. It eats a lot more than, you know, I mean, it, your, the worm eats the, cat. the worm eats the, the spice crawler. Can it digest metal and, well, Whatever. I haven't even got to that yet. I'm just going to like, what do they eat when they're just hooning around the place in this completely yeah. desolate planet that doesn't seem to have any vegetation apart from some now burnt out palm trees? I mean, I'm just, I've always had this problem with like, wait, what? what? Well, I think, I think, I think this they're, is, they're difficult. This is part two to Mike's, this is part two, by the way, to Mike's uh, Spider-Man Spider physics. physics. <laughs> the worm, the worm physics. On, on, worm physics is number two. Yeah. <laughs> I think but, it's hard. It is a hard problem, though. It, it's, a, it's a visually hard. It's a suspension of disbelief that's required to really, like, let that be a thing. At least in the way that it's portrayed within the context of the film. Like, you know, they did some cool stuff with the worm design in this film, where yeah. they kind of have the baleen, almost like, mm -hmm. you know, the sort of uh, spikes in the. It's in like the an mouth. eye. Almost. It's like an iris, almost. Yeah, yeah, it really does look like an eye at a certain point. But I think the thing that. Um, I found slightly disconcerting though, is there's a shot near the very end of the film where they have a, sort of escaped with the Fremen or whatever, and things are looking up where, you know, it's only the beginning or whatever. And we look <laughs> off in the distance and we see uh, some people riding on worms. And yep. I, it feels like that's where we kind of like, at least for me, like visually, like we kind of jumped the shark. Like I was, I was like, oh, we're back in the David Lynch universe, you know, of Dune. It, it it's hard to make that look uh, convincing and not ridiculous. Like there's a, there's something about it that is sort of absurd. I mean, yeah. Gina Davis rides a worm in Beetlejuice. It's not, you know, yeah, it's pretty close. But it's, no, but the <laughs> kind of slightly different. May I point out? Yeah, no, but but here's the thing, right? I, I totally agree with you. Like the one thing you don't want as a visual effects artist is to be given a shot that's so absurd that it's just really hard to pull off yeah. because it it just begs disbelief in composition, yet alone like physics. I mean, these guys just kill it for for moronic things in physics also if you're riding on the back of these suckers and they go under the sand like yeah, what do you do down yeah do you, i mean if you apart from the fact you can't breathe but even if you could breathe right you'd still be wiped out by the bloody it's like holding onto the sides of um in this uh film uncharted that's just come out you know where they've got the guys yeah. jumping forward on a plane that's they're on things suspended out the back of a plane and they're jumping forward Okay, like the second that you jumped up in the air, the wind alone would make you go away, not make you jump forward towards a plane hanging on to cargoes that are yeah. suspended by a sort of flimsy rope. It's anyway. based on a video game, but yeah. Okay, but but again, in that, but I was getting to that, right? But in that, I don't need visual authenticity to the same level because it's based on a video game, because it's kind of like a jokey Indiana Jonesy kind of thing. And because, you know, like quite frankly, it just doesn't have the gravitas of this film, right? But in this film, yeah, you you have these because I think like a lot of the stuff. If I was like picking shots, like that firefight at night when they oh, are attacked, gorgeous. Just you put that on your show reel, you just mic drop yeah. and you know spectacular I mean? scale there. Also, yeah. by the way, like that's yeah. where the scale is 
really successful, like the the size of the explosions. The, there's a mm -hmm. shot of at one point one of those like thopter things takes Ornithopter, off. Ornithopter, yeah. And there's I think that's what happens. And there's that cascade of like this kind of destruction of missiles that sort of fall yeah. in this very oh, yeah. I, uh, kind of octopi kind Every of teenager should get like a bottle of tequila on their birthday to the rest of their careers for that stuff. Yeah. I think that's it's beautiful just insanely work. good. I, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that the, the worm is not beautiful work. Technically, it's just so much harder to kind of pull off a shot when you're like, what? Like also like this whole idea that like they just stop when they get to a rock, right? It's like, it's like, I just, you know, like there's just so much weirdness about those worms that I find it really, really hard to, to I guess, buy into. I, guess, I mean, I, I think though that there's a degree to which like this story and the execution of this movie, it's much more so in second viewing. I really, I was feeling like, wow, this is really like, it's pretty like a metaphysical mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of like journey, you know, it's so, it has such a kind of, um, strange spirituality to it and kind of a, a mm -hmm. mis mysticism maybe in there some and and there's a, a there is also some uh juicy political uh mm -hmm. anytime jessica and uh, paul are talking there's this kind of political uh dynamic that's happening between the what's told what people are told to believe and versus what people mm -hmm. actually believe and that kind of thing, which is really interesting. So it's kind of playing on a lot of the themes that I think are part of the book in a brilliant way, much more so than the, the David Lynch version. But I think that that metaphysical piece, like in that kind of spiritual piece, I think lends itself to this idea of these creatures, you know, and that these creatures become mm -hmm. representative of something else maybe in some way right? where they do defy the laws of physics as we understand them, you know, in a way that's well, kind of ridiculous, of the spice, but they yeah. kind of protect the spice and the spice is clearly a, a uh, shamanistic experience when Paul, you know, first gets to the scene we're talking about he and he basically gets trips out, you know, yeah. <laughs> during the thing. Uh, can I, can I, switch gears quickly and can we talk about Stellan Skarsgård's Colonel Kurtz uh Baron Harkonnen because that shit is like top 10 easily I mean that was so like yes go for the Kurtz you know like it it's totally fine because it's like your own take on it and the 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 physical makeup the um the um uh appliances on him and just the visual effects in general i mean that is just and practical effects that's yeah. what i mean let's yeah. give like, practical the guys a that's shout what I meant by appliances yeah like the the oh my god yeah i mean everything top to bottom on him was just all the different little environments that you saw him in was just Ugh, and the healing stellar. fluid that looks like oil yeah. kind of how that's yeah. cascading that's off of his skin and so good i mean that really is yeah it's and, yeah. It, and it creates a for that character it creates like all the kind of mystique and evil and mm -hmm. darkness that like you could ever want him to have i mean it's like yeah it's, with no with no exposition like you hear about the harkonnens you see dave batista and the harkonnens doing all their all their nasty shit you see you see them making all their machinations with the Sardaukars and the and all that stuff. And he never says anything. 
He literally just gives commands. You don't say like, they're not like, Ooh, Baron Harkonnen, he's horrible. Like no one ever says that. You just know that's Baron Harkonnen and, or Harkonnen as they say it. And he's just purely represented visually to tell you everything you need. I think this, I thought- this, this ties into something that I, I did make another note about too, which this is kind of an ephemeral thing, but I think it speaks to really every aspect of this, of this movie, certainly including the visual effects, the visual effects design, all the things we're talking about with regards to scale and uh, character um, accoutrement or whatever, um, mm-hmm. is that, that there is this incredibly, I think, great taste which is kind of a weird thing to say because it's such a Mm -hmm. kind of subjective thing. But I think there is this something that is largely recognized, I think, by people who've gone to see this movie. There is this great taste that helps make this film function and work across the board. Like there are excellent choices that are Mm -hmm. made by the entire creative team, not just the director. You know, I'm sure everybody's sort of involved in some way or another and collectively coming to this vision of the aesthetics of this movie. Um, and they, and it's very tasteful <laughs> that for lack yeah. of a better term, you know, and I think it, that's one of the things that helps sell a lot of this stuff, even the things that maybe we find, you know, to be sort of absurd or, or fantastical, like you're willing to kind of entertain them and go there because it's like, no, well, it all kind of fits. Yeah. I mean, who's the production designer, James Chinland. Is that right? I, I uh, don't know, uh, but I, I, th- I think, uh, I mean, but yeah, I mean, production design, you know, it, it's stellar. Uh, can, can I also point out that I know, I'm sure we've all seen Yodorowsky's Dune documentary. Uh, did anyone feel like the approach of, of the, Caledonians, as it were, uh, Atreides to Arrakis was a little, it had a little bit of a mix of Indiana Jones map room and uh, Yodorowsky's drawings of the kind of flat pyramid um, stuff that ended up in Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner um, kind of vibe. You mean this the cities? Yeah, like when we see, yeah when we see the city and we kind of push over the city. Well, it was designed. Yeah, it was designed very much. But wait, who did you say was the production designer? Or who do you think was the production? James designer? Chinland. No, no, no. It's Patrice uh, Vermetti. Ah, okay. At least that's what it says on IMDb Pro. I looked it up when you were talking. Hmm. Okay. Um, but uh, and I apologize if I got that wrong. Um, but I was going to say I know it was designed. Oh, to sorry, like- Chinland was Batman. Sorry. Right, yeah. Designed to look like it was um, sand, like dealing with high velocity sand. And it was yep. sort of like, uh, so that was like a very functional nature to why the city was designed the way it was. Oh, 100%. It just, it yeah. was reminiscent of the sort of yeah. that flatter shape that, that Yodorowsky had sort of picked up on for his version of Dune with, with which, I mean, it like I the, said, then made it into Blade Runner. Yeah, but. it was the brutalism that I, yeah. you know, was going uh-huh. like just concrete. I think that brutalism. that f- initial flyover though of the the palace, the city, mm-hmm. like on Arrakis, uh, is another thing where I feel like it lacked scale. 
<laughs> where something about it's hard, this, right? Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's these hard. weird hieroglyphic kind of shapes and there's no reference objects. That's no what pe I was say, no yeah. people are seen because everyone's inside because it's too hot to be outside, but there are no recognizable reference objects to portray scale. And I right. think looking at it, it looks like, you know, kind of those modular pieces that they built for the trench run in Star Wars, kind of their <laughs> aspect. Like it's a very long shot where we're flying yeah. over that part of the yeah. city. But that's why I had that's why it reminded me of the map room kind of mm -hmm. scene yeah. where they yeah, that's push good. in that's over a, the over mm -hmm. the thing. But don't you ever get that sense that like these these are problems that are so hard because in real life, I mean who hasn't in a plane gone, when you look down like that, everyone looks like ants, right? And, yeah. you know, you yourself are looking at the real world and you're like, that looks so like fake <laughs> like you know how are they going to learn how to read if they can't even fit in the building <laughs> can we talk about ants <laughs> yeah zoolander uh um but the i'm not sure there's a solution to yeah, that point like, it like, there, looks... like you can't you can't add geography where it shouldn't exist you can't put a mountain bigger than something in the back when there are no mountains in that real right. in that landscape like so what do you start farther back? Do you have a ship already landed well, somewhere? Well, the only like that, or, or the only reference I could think you could have is you could have the size of something that we recognize as the size of the ship that they're in, the little helicopter thing. Yeah, and maybe it's in the way that a helicopter casts a shadow. You know, well, any sure. flying any flying object casts a shadow yeah. right <laughs> in, in daylight, but having it cast a shadow over that, like maybe there's yeah. something about that that would convey scale and distance yeah. and altitude of the thing mm -hmm. in the foreground and then the city in the background. I don't know, but, but maybe that's less interesting too, as a shot design. I don't know. I think sometimes what you need to do is not show that shot. I think sometimes what you need to do is let the audience kind of imagine it, right? Like you get, you, like you crave the big flyover shots. So everybody can see everything, but you would have got that scale at the night. Like I didn't have that problem mm -hmm. at night when they were doing the, so I would right. have like maybe like, not fully revealed the city in a big establishing wide shot um and then you kind of got it at night at how big it was no it's a I good think point yeah, an establishing shot mm -hmm. that's not a big flyover you know yeah, yeah. well in yeah. daylight hard daylight is such a such a bitch in general yeah. like i think we talked about that years ago when the first thor movie came out and we were talking about seeing all the characters in their outfits in broad daylight like it's it's very it made it a little comedic because you can see, like they look too real. You know what oh, I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Anyone else uh, have a slight issue that like the uh, the fighting troops look like they were the unreal default characters from UE4? Uh, <laughs> the, you know the, the black ones? <laughs> yeah, the black ones. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's like, you die, wait a second. You just, <laughs> you just turn the color black. <laughs> They're normally white. <laughs> uh sure now what do we think it. about the um the, the new version of the uh shields? navigators no, oh the yeah of the what's right the shields the personal defense shield thing compared to the lynch uh dune i think that was the one thing when we talked about lynch's dune that we said we we thought was kind of cool because it's like an effects yeah. animation thing and they had yeah. done these sort of weird uh in its day shifts. it was really good yeah. yeah but this is sort of an interesting take on that it's similar oddly like it has a mm -hmm. although it certainly is a very different um uh it's it's such look. a good idea though right it's like the babel fish of this film right it's like you've got an inherent problem when they just shoot each other right you know like it's like it's just so dumb right why don't they just shoot each other right how can we possibly have these guys fighting with knives and things 
when they, you know, just shoot them for Christ's sake. And then you go, ah, well, you can only have a slow moving thing. So a bullet won't do it. You'll have to do it with a knife. You have to and really slow dart. Slow dart it. Exactly. But the thing <laughs> about it is like, it does, it does solve a huge kind of uh, problem of authenticity mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, that then allows them to have cool fighting scenes and, you know, reasons mm -hmm. why people walk up sand covered corridors, killing each other rather than just, you know, walking in with a M16 well, version. Also, of also it's, I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I could be wrong, but other than ships or giant like boat kind of, you know, turret guns, there's no guns in the movie. They're all swords and knives mm -hmm. and stuff. So, I mean, that just makes for a more interesting film. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. But it but speaks to your comment about the shields. Like you have to have a, if if they have these shields, then you wouldn't even bother with guns. So there's no guns, yeah. or at least not being used. And so it's all knives and spears and and what have you. I I thought it was really cool, you know, the 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 differential between, you know, blue and bl blue and red. You know, red being you're fucked and blue being like you've you've been blocked you know mm -hmm. it's uh and, and it's like and it's a really small device it just has a shield it just has a slider and it just sort of on there's not there wasn't like a big fanfare it wasn't a big like ooh, now's the time when we have the big you know and it takes 30 seconds for us to really understand it <laughs> but it makes a, it, it does make a little sound effect and i you're totally right yeah. i didn't think about that the blue and the red like, yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool. Like it's a great it's a little visual. visual. Yeah. Yeah. And it tells you all you need to know about it right there. You're just exactly. like, oh, okay. And, and they oh. don't, and he, and, and Brolin, you know, uh, says it, but he says it in an instructional way. So it's not exposition. When it comes on, he goes, he goes, remember slow moving blade, whatever. And he kind of like taps his hand slowly with the blade as they're in motion about to fight, not exposition, right? Like it's really subtle. Because if there's some other movie, he would have walked in the room and been describing it to him for 10 minutes before they actually fought, right? And, like, it's just not necessary. Yeah. There's also a gorgeous scene with Paul moving through a hologram, which they do oh, yeah. as genius by actually doing different levels of projection of... Um, ah. Do you want to describe the shot? You can probably articulate the shot better. Yeah, it's when he's uh, he's Paul's in his room later in Arrakis, and he's yeah. looking at plant life and other things uh, with his little like Pico projector, and but like volumetric Pico projector, and he hears we see the close up of the like dragonfly dart thing that sort of burned its way through the door, uh, or however it got in the room, and then he notices it and he walks up and sort of hides in this bright white i guess it looks like coral almost like sort of coral mixed with a undersea plant if you were to like describe it even though it's obviously there's no water on arrakis but and he sort of disguises himself in the projection map of the of the item uh and the thing sort of stops and i i thought that was really really nice um it looked real, which to your description means that they did project some things onto him. Well, they had this, this projection system that as he moved, it was projecting different parts of the projected image, if that makes sense. So right. 
So at any one instant, it's obviously only showing because it can't be a holographic projection that doesn't exist. But you know, you imagine if you've got a slice, well, the, where he's up to in the middle, like that's the slice that's being projected on him. As he steps mm -hmm. forward, the, the, the projector is only now projecting the front part of the right the coral that you're talking about on it because he's moving he's moving in the projection space yeah and so the projector is updating so as to dynamically only have on him so the best way to think about it is like imagine it was a, a sphere yeah when he's in the middle of mm -hmm. the sphere he'd have the biggest diameter of the sphere projected on his chest and as he moves forward the projector would be projecting progressively smaller circles so it looks like he's moving through the sphere now in this case mm -hmm. it's coral but you get the idea right and I mean, when you say it, it seems sort of super obvious. And of course, it only works if you can very tightly choreograph the actor um, moving and the projector changing what is projected on him. But then you add in some visual effects around it and voila, mm -hmm. you have completely believable, authentic lighting on the actor. Yeah, yeah it's um, beautiful. I love that like, kind of solution too. Oh, like it's so yeah. smart and so smartly thought out where, you know, probably you know, eight out of 10 filmmakers wouldn't even bother, but you know, you get the right team involved and they think about that shot and that sequence. And they try to think, well, how are we going to do that? And they come up with a system like that to really give them exactly what they need when they bring it into the right. effects pipeline. I mean, it's just, it's such a, that's the best thing about visual effects. I think are things like that, where you come up with a solution to a problem like that. Well, and that goes back to what we were saying before about the mixture, like the, baking as much as you can into the plate yeah. yeah uh to both to both inform the visual effects team but also to use it as much as possible mm -hmm. right so what i love picking up on on both of those points is i'm tired of people saying um oh, i really want visual effects to go back to the day where you had a model and you shot a model right because the models don't look that good right but what i love is modern virtual production and model modern digital solutions are happening on set now they're not a physical prop that you can walk up and take a selfie with but like that projection thing we just talked about uh be it um his uh greg's use of um uh doing projection onto led volumes in the batman like whatever it is like mm -hmm. we're now getting visual effects back on set it's in a very sort of tangible and dare I say tactile sense, though they're not physical props that are miniatures at one thirtieth scale that you can take a selfie with. Um, but it's not a separation of church and state where it's all being done digital in a computer later. It's being done with computers. I don't know if you saw a unrelated to this film, a story I did on FX guide about these guys that were doing projection mappings of the screens. So you know how on it, and this is a tangent, I know, but, you know how on an LED um, volume, as the camera moves, it updates what's in the LED volume by making it look like that you're seeing parallax on the back wall, right? Yeah. yeah. They do the same thing on like a handheld iPad. So it looks like the iPad has a holographic image above it. And as you turn mm. your iPad, it adjusts the UE4 that's feeding that iPad live on set so that the camera sees what it would see if it had had a three-dimensional holograph sitting above oh, it. Oh, wow, that's cool. So, yeah, so I imagine to use an example uh, of an apple that's got a stalk at the top, right? When mm -hmm. the camera moves from the side to the top, it starts to see the top of the apple and then it sees the stalk at the top. Of course, right. all that's happening is it's just changing the flat image on the... Mm -hmm. And anyone that's not where the camera is sees the wrong image. Right. But now, they do that on every monitor in a room 
and you walk on the set and it looks really wrong. You go over to where the camera is and it looks like mm -hmm. every screen of a, whatever, you know, a spaceport, a, um, an Avenger style mm -hmm. layer has floating holographic yep. displays in front. And this is the best part about it because it's live. If the actor taps the iPad slash screen or whatever, they can manipulate the graphics because of course they're real time graphics. And yes, the actor has to do some acting because they're not visually correct from his eye line. They're only correct from the camera's eye line. But nevertheless, they are letting the actor have something to play with and mm -hmm. we're getting the right contact lighting. And now that's what I love about visual effects in the modern age. Like we're getting it back yeah. on set. And I completely agree with Matt. Like it's just these ingenious solutions that let you collaborate, let you inform the actor so they can make good choices and have this tangible nature to them. And that's what I want. That's what I love. That's what I adore. And I don't need to go back to shooting the relatively limited array of things you can do if you've got a 130th model and you're it, doing it. Makes a, me, it makes me wonder, around. you know, talking about that, talking about, you know, when you're saying about the, the screens and the actor giving something to kind of respond to, too, like it makes me wonder, uh, even with the, uh, the sand screen, you know, like in a strange way, I would think, the suspension of disbelief for an actor is probably slightly less than the artificiality of Good point. a chroma key blue or a chroma key mm -hmm. green screen on a set where you can at least kind of you're you you're looking everyone you're looking at they don't have bounce light that's blue or mm -hmm. green on their face they they look like they're in the desert and i wonder if that's uh yeah part of the thinking behind that as well well and then also for to that point to take it one step further that has nothing to do with visual effects um in that same larry Sher frazier conversation they talked about a lot of the interior shots of the ornithopters when they're flying in the daytime and it's just sort of like light they're like yeah we could have done that on the stage but we we wanted sunlight and so yeah. we figured out what building would get us up high enough to bring the ornithopter body to put it on top of the building so when we looked through the windows we didn't see buildings in jordan and modern jordan we just saw above the horizon and then okay what time of day can we be up there to get the sun like smashed you know in the ornithopter and done like i i'll you put know, a that's giving picture in the show notes of this because i've got a great picture of that and it's got a like a best way to describe this you know if you've got a dog that's had surgery they have cone of shame yeah <laughs> yeah so it's a cone that's sitting on obviously facing up to the sky around the the uh platform and so you've got a motion control platform they're sitting in the chopper it's on motion control all around them effectively below the horizon of their their ship is the sand color for the right, you know, king and mm -hmm. not having the artifacts, but everything above that horizon line is the real sky and the real sunlight, mm -hmm. as you say. And uh, yeah, that's how they shot a lot of that stuff. And it's brilliant that they put it on top of a sort of small hill, if not small mountain, to get it to the height. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it was a hill, not a building. Yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm curious because uh, I, I have two, but I'm curious if you guys have uh, like a favorite shot or shots sequence. A visual well, mine wise. is already the one I said, which was the walking through the what um, Jason described as coral, right? I just thought that was mm -hmm. just genius. But but tell us uh, what's yours. Oh, I, there are two that I really like. I mentioned the one already with the uh, the destruction and the uh, the weird ship that launches all the missiles at once that yeah. kind of go off That's in these nice swirly shot, yeah. patterns. 
But the other one that I really liked, and it's part of a sequence, and it's I, 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 today I watching it, I had this whole other like. <laughs> This says more about me, maybe, but I had this weird other like memory of my childhood. And it's where um, Jessica and Paul are in the ornithopter that is escaping the missiles that have been fired at them. And they go into the sandstorm and they're trying to sort of fly to land somewhere in the mm -hmm. sandstorm. And the wings are ripping off the ornithopter. And eventually mm -hmm. they both fall back against the, the length of the ship. So they're retracted and they're basically free falling uh, at one point. And as they're free falling, the ship is kind of tumbling in the sandstorm. And it yeah. looks, it actually looks like in that, and they kind of make it really lyrical. Like it's not scary. The music becomes kind of ethereal and pleasant. And it, it doesn't look like a, um, a ship anymore. It looks like um, if you've ever seen like in the fall in uh, the like Midwest mm. of the United States or the, yeah, the little helicopter things that fall from the, uh, from mm -hmm. trees, right? The seedlings I have no idea from what you're oak trees. About. It's like a yeah, seedling like from a, an oak tree. And when it falls, yeah, it's like it the, has like oh. a single propeller on it and a seed at the middle. It's a leaf basically. And they dry and they Got fall it. and they spin as they fall. And it looked like one of those things. And it was, it was so cool because they kept playing with that shape. And it looked like whoever designed that shot was thinking, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I was, uh, having well, an no, out, of, out of body Sounds experience, like really but it was really beautiful and a beautiful visual effect too. Yeah. Jason, what's your favorite shot or shots? Um, I, from, I, you know, I do, I do really love that entire nighttime, like fight scene. Like it's, it's there's stuff happening in the back, you know, the explosions there's like, you have the ship hovering, you feel the scale of it, even though you can't see it because it's like illuminated, like the yep. New Year's Eve crystal ball thing. And and the way that all the, you know, different ways that the missiles come out, targeted, not targeted, uh, you get the sort of, you know, dual gun, uh, you know, defensive things that are working. There's all this contact lighting, that's happening. People are running at night. They've already talked about the moon and stuff. Uh, and so you see a little bit of moonlight. Like it feels very, really real. It feels like war. You know they're fucked. And they do this, they do this really great one when Josh Brolin's like they're trying to run to one of their ships, the Caledonian ships, and it just it gets hit by a couple of missiles and it sort of like drops for a second. You see, it has it has the same shield, mm -hmm. like the personal shields. Yeah, yeah. So it gets like a little blue vibration, and then it goes red, and it kind of drops what you would assume would be a few hundred feet, and then it sort of collapses on itself. Yep. And I kept thinking for scale, like obviously, at least in my brain, sort of scale versus frames per second is always the trick, uh, and obviously it's not frames per second per se in the CG app, but it's the way it feels. And it, f it fell like really, everything was moving appropriately. I mean, it's a giant ship and it, it blew up slowly in stages. I don't know, it's just the whole design of that whole thing was, was edited really nicely, shot really well. The visual effects told the story as opposed to just being, uh, yeah. you know, visual. Um, other than that, I think my other favorite ship design is uh, when the 
the navigators came down and it was that big donut or ship. Yeah. The big kind of orby ship and, uh, the way that the, I love the new navigators, like the red spice, you know, filled helmets. could see their face. I know, but they reminded me of like <laughs> dudes from the cover of like a sleep record that like a yeah. Roper designed or something. But no, like... I have to ask one really out there question because we did do our, our, our retro show not that long ago. And I've been dying to ask you guys this because I, I have a couple of things I think I would say, but is there anything you think Lynch did better in his version? I mean, I think there's that whole third stage navigator scene with the, with the guys in the tanks. I mean, that's an iconic, the whole Jose Ferrer opulent. I'd, I'd um, agree. Yeah. The, the palace emperor's is, palace. I mean, emperor's palace is like, we don't even I mean, see the emperor in this, in this version, no, this no. part of the film anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's a chef's kiss, like right off the, right out of the gate on the Lynch one. I think that, that section. Anything for yeah. you, Mike, or absolutely nothing. Sting's yeah. beautiful hair, his speedo. Uh, his diaper was great. No. Um, yeah, Sting's hair. I mean, yeah. I got to say, the, the, and I hope I'm not repeating myself, but I probably am. The anecdote about Patrick Stewart meeting Sting on set. Did I tell you that? I, I, so, I think so, but I happily hear it again. Okay, yeah. so, so Patrick Stewart's obviously in the first one, right? And he says, and I'm aware that, uh, you can see it on YouTube, it's like, I'm aware that there's this musician coming on and everyone seems to be excited about it. His name apparently is Sting and I don't know who he is, uh, but I'm very glad he's there. And he says, and so Sting turns <laughs> up and he goes, uh, you know, like everyone's sort of like making a fuss about him being on set. And so Patrick Stewart, who at this stage, of course, is not, you know, the mega mm -hmm. star that he becomes, yeah. but yeah, he's Excalibur, actor. an Excalibur, you know. Yeah, yeah. so he, he walks up to Sting and he's like, uh, and he's like, so, uh, so you're a musician, are you? And he's like, yes, yeah, I am actually. And he goes, and he goes, I'm in a band. And, and Patrick Stewart goes, oh, really? What's the band? And he goes, police. He goes, oh, you're in a police band. What do you play? He's a trumpet band. That's awesome. And he's like, well, I actually play guitar. To which Patrick Stewart's slightly confused that you have a guitarist. Yeah. You know, a in a police band. band? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, well, it says, how's that going for you? <laughs> That's so like, good. Pretty well. Pretty well. Yeah. I would, That's I would good. say the one thing from the Lynch movie that I really think is still better than this version, although this version is infinitely better on so many levels, it's not even really worth comparing, but I think the still suits in the original are there's to me, they're as iconic as what you were describing, Jason, the, the navigator, like the, yeah. uh, I think Ringwald, I think was the or Ringwood Ringwald, I think was the designer of the original still suits and they are so cool looking. And these still suits in this film look a little bit like, um, like BMX biker outfits. Yeah. <laughs> it's just because of the, the face mask. Mm, and the, oh, like the cod piece yeah. and the, yeah. Elbow pads and the yeah, yeah. knee pads and the yeah, the like they've got skateboards. Yeah, <laughs> um, anyway. we've run out of time, gentlemen. Um, it's been terrific talking to you. Uh, for those people that want to touch base with you, Jason, where's the best place to go? Uh, my website, thediamondbros.com, or everywhere you can find my name, Jason Diamond, on the socials. 
And Jason's recovering very generously come on today because he's actually recovering from a, a brief bout of not being well. So uh, thanks for pulling that together, Jason. Of course, I wouldn't miss it. And you were just in New York, is that right? No, no, you were just where you, no, you, were, in, you and you'd come back to New York. No, I was in Austin, Texas oh, Austin. for South, South, oh, by, South Southwest. by Southwest. Okay, I'm sorry. Where there's a movie that I want us to talk about that I saw when it comes out. Okay. Well, brilliant. And Matt, where can people touch base with you? You can always find me at mattwallen.com or you can go on and uh, look up 8111, which is my other podcast where I interview people I used to work with at ILM. Have you yet disclosed the significance of the name? I think so. Yeah, it's it's the there was a paging system at ILM uh, and it back in the days before cell phones, this was in the early 1990s, and you would hit 255 on a telephone, pick it up, and you could say, it would go beep all over the whole complex. And you could say, Mike Seymour, 8111, Mike Seymour, 8111, please. And Mike would go to a phone and type 8111, and he would be connected then to an outside line, say his, uh, maybe his dog was calling and wanted to go out for a walk or something. And Excellent. <laughs> so you're calling on the ILM team uh, through uh, through your podcast. I love it. It's great. <laughs> okay. And of course, I'm over at uh, FX Guide, um, where uh, we'll hopefully be able to applaud and and thank and and I guess uh, draw attention to not just the guys that win the Oscars, which you know, of course, we like to do, but the entire teams that work behind that, because uh, obviously the the nominated Oscar. Um, team uh, met like the Oscars uh, have four people that are allowed to be nominated. Um, I don't think any of those people that have nominated would be um, uh, hesitate for a second to point out that they're only there because of the teams behind them. And so I always like to really think that in visual effects, it's the, it's the team that wins the Oscar, not the individual at the front. I know that that's not true literally, but I like to think that's how it is. And uh, it's just such a collaborative team effort. And the team here at uh, DNEG, as I say, she's getting a bottle of tequila every day on their birthday until the end of their career guys thank you so much for being with us until next time i will and or until next time we get to um hopefully i think i'm right in saying we're, we're talking before we started that we might get to the batman um which would be uh which would be great a completely different type of film but with the same cinematographer but that'll be after uh, the oscars come out so if we can rally that we will do it until then thanks so much for being with us guys see you if you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.